Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my colleagues and friends, Dr. Jimmy Van and Dr. Kirsten Mills. Um, so today we are continuing in our little mini series of um, teen movies based on classic literature, I suppose we're going to call it. Um, so we've already done 10 Things I Hate About You. And today we're talking about She's the Man, the 2006 film um, based on Twelfth Night, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. So we've all recently we rewatched this, I think. And I'm going to throw to Kirsten and get a sense of what Kirsten thinks about She's the Man. I get a sense because this is kind of nobody wanted to go first in offering their opinions on this particular film. Um, look, I I didn't. So by 2006, I was doing my honours year of university. So it's not a film that I grew up with um, in the you know the way that um, Clueless or Ten Things I Hate About You were. So with those, I've got a real nostalgic connection to that um, that kind of 90s adaptation of classic literature. This one being 2006 is a lot later. And so I don't have that, yeah, that personal connection to it. But that said, I still enjoy it. I remember watching it and I don't think I have, re I have watched it since back then. So watching it again was um, interesting. I nearly turned it off. I think I was, I was, uh, I don't know, maybe half an hour in or something, or maybe longer than that. And I was thinking, get to the point, where's the plot? When's it going to kick in? Um, and I was very close to turning it off. And then thankfully it turned a corner and something happened. And then it, it went on from there. And I actually enjoyed it after that point. Um, once the sort of central conceit is set up, um, like I think we're going to find it interesting to talk about. There are some... There are some uh, interesting issues with it, um, but it's it's funny, it's simple. Um, I don't know really what to say about it. Like, I think like okay, so Twelfth Night is one of the um, one of the Shakespeare plays I enjoy the most. For me, it's one of my favourites. I think, um, and that might be because I do remember seeing that. I went to a lovely. Um, Company B, Belvoir Street Theatre production, when, in the year 2000, I think it was, I was in year 10. And um, it had a, it, it was a wonderful production. And I, I remember specifically, um, I think it was Richard Sydenham playing Malvolio. And he had such wonderful facial expressions that were so exaggerated and comic. Um, almost, these days you'd almost require CG to, to do what he was able to do with his mouth in his evil sort of smiles that he was doing. And I thought that was such a, a memorable, wonderful character. And then so when I was watching this film, um, I forgot that they just reduced that character to a spider, like literally a pet spider. And <laughs> so for me, the film, while being sweet and, you know, it does what it does, fairly well, I guess, but it, it doesn't really do Twelfth Night for me all that well because it just takes the most obvious plot line from that and kind of does away with the fun stuff that happens around Twelfth Night, um, you know, particularly with that character. Malvolio miss, missing from the film uh, is, is I, I think it's a, a loss to the film. They could have, it could have been more complicated, could have been much more clever in the way that Ten Things or A Clueless are. I think they're quite complex films in a way in everything they're dealing with. And they have 
in many ways a bit of a darker undercurrent and and in Twelfth Night that's really where Malvolio comes in um, so I've got a few more things I think about it but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it back to you guys and, and hear what you think first okay thank you Kirsten Jimmy what do you think about um, she's the man okay well I think I'm a little bit more generous with it because um, so that my history with it was, okay, so 2006, I was going through what basically loosely described a quarter life crisis. Uh, I had quit my job and decided that I'm just going to I don't know, wander the world, uh, travel. And you know, so I saved a fair bit of money and so I'm just going to go traveling a bit uh, and figure out what I want to do the rest of my life. Um, because, you know, that's what you do apparently as uh, someone of a Gen X um, generation. And I was, I watched this film on the plane. So my expectations of the film itself was almost zero. I was, I was looking for just anything to keep me entertained for that. Uh, I think it was a 20 hour flight. I don't know where I was going to, it was either New York or somewhere like that. It was a very long flight and I just thought, uh, I just want a film to um, wallow the hours. So I wasn't expecting anything from it. I also didn't read up about it at all. So I had no idea it was also uh, based on a Shakespeare play. And like to things say about you, um, it was one of those where half the film finally clicked, oh, this is an adaptation. Um, so I wasn't expecting adaptation. So I wasn't actually, I didn't have any of those expectations going into the film. From that perspective, I actually quite enjoyed the film. I thought it was quite funny. I do have a bit of a soft spot for uh, rom-coms. So, you know, a little bit softy from that perspective. Uh, so I thought it was actually quite entertaining. I thought it was um, a lot of fun. Of course, I hadn't revisited the film since then. Um, I only remember just you know, bits and pieces of the film. And uh, my perspective of it also is slightly skewed in the sense that I haven't actually uh, read the play at all. So I know really very little about Twelfth Night other than the basic plot um, of Twelfth Night. So for me, it was just uh, quite entertaining to watch. And I thought the issues around gender was actually quite interesting, uh, a bit dated nowadays, but still very interesting for, for its time as well. Um, and uh, I think, you know, if, if you go into the film probably expecting a lot out of it in terms of literary adaptation, it probably can disappoint uh, a fair number of people, but if you're just going in for a bit of fun, some light comedy, nothing too heavy, then um, I don't think it's probably that, um, I don't know, I, 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 you have to have expectations for this film in order to get something out of it. Uh, because if you're expecting this really, um, terrific adaptation and yeah it, it's bound to this point from, from that perspective um yeah okay so it's my turn i hated this <laughs> um i i don't think i have a very faint memory of perhaps having seen it years and years ago but i don't have any i didn't have any kind of strong feelings or any kind of nostalgia about the film again like kirsten i was older i wasn't really into teen movies at the time um i probably didn't take it very seriously um, but re-watching it, I thought it was dated um, in the way that 10 Things I Hate About You, which is actually older, isn't dated. I thought it was dated. I thought it wasn't funny. I didn't find any of the characters compelling. Um, I just found it tiresome. I, I, I don't know. I felt old watching this. I was like, oh, look, these are all these teenagers, you know, <laughs> like I don't care. Um, and I didn't feel that way about, about 10 Things I Hate About You at all. Um, I loved that film. Um, I just think that, I don't know, this, for me, what it does, probably similarly to Kirsten, I feel like what it does is take everything that's clever and funny and smart about Twelfth Night and just reduce it to a story about a mix-up between, you know, like a, a girl who wants to play soccer and dresses up as a dude and then falls in love with some with another dude. You know, that, that was really all it became. Um, she's you know the the whole plot of she's the man is just silly in the way that you know obviously there's there's some you know 
um, shenanigans with Twelfth Night um, in terms of gender but and, and like silliness. But the thing with She's the Man is that there's nothing really else there. And I don't think that what it's saying about gender is particularly interesting. In fact, I think it takes a lot of um, the kind of gender play of Twelfth Night out by making it very kind of, I don't know, there was a kind of horror of homosexuality and homoeroticism in this film that isn't there in Twelfth Night. And, you know, you have to be, it has to be pretty conservative text when the 16th century, 17th century text is actually much more experimental in terms of the way it plays with um, gender. I don't know, Kirsten, you're nodding. Do you agree? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the, yeah, I mean, in some ways, so this is one of the, the debates around the Twelfth Night, how progressive is it? I mean, it's yeah. got this kind of um, carnival, kind of misrule, saturnalian kind of fun going on, the Twelfth Night after Christmas. Um, so everything, all the rules are kind of suspended, all the genders inverted, um, identities across. So Shakespeare loves this stuff anyway. Yeah. Um, it crops up all over the place. Um, I'm thinking, obviously, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream is another one that's, that loves that kind of frivolity um so all of this gets played with but by the end everything gets returned to uh the status quo so women are set up to marry the men yeah. um you know so things like that um so there's the debate around how progressive it is but then this film does much the same thing i think in some ways it's i don't want to say progressive but i'm just i'll acknowledge that it calls out gender norms and it kind of um critiques them in a way so obviously a big part of that is um what's an name viola critiquing femininity because she does she's not a particularly feminine girl um and she's forced into this um what is it the, the debutante ball kind of thing the the almost like a beauty pageant type scenario by her mother and she just doesn't want to be there and there are some funny scenes that emerge from that when she's told you know um <laughs> she's there chewing on, on this meat or something she shoved in her mouth and it's absolutely disgusting to watch. And, you know, someone leans over and says, Viola, honey, chew like you have a secret. And then she gets this evil kind of grin and keeps chewing with her mouth open. Um, so there's some funny moments, I think, of pointing out just how stupid a lot of gender norms are. Um, I, I did also, I have always said that high heels make it harder for women to run away. And so when that quote came up, I was like, oh yeah, you know, like, fair point. That's but true. Kirsten, do you feel that it goes back on that at the end? I, yeah. Um, the, and again, like maybe much like Twelfth Night, but um, in a, in a different, I think it, it's more conservative. It's much more conservative than Twelfth Night because it does kind of return everything to normal by the end. Um, and I agree with the the sort of latent homophobia that's that's there. Um, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, it critiques masculinity as well. Like she performs hypermasculinity with she performs misogyny. She tries to be one of the dudes. She tries to use the language, and eventually, um, you know, her love interest just what's the main guy's name? I forget his name already. Duke or Zeno? Duke. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so he. <laughs> Um, I like the names. I like what they've done with those. But he he basically says, like, what are you doing? Like, and proves that he's the sensitive new age guy or whatever. And she falls in love with him. But by the end, yeah, everything. I don't know. I just found it like like we were saying, I think it's just, it's really simple. It's a really simple girl meets boy, mm. but can't immediately be with him. And then eventually does be with him. And it's, 
it's funny in, in many ways, but that the actual central conceit isn't very complicated. And no. they've made it, yeah, even, even less, far less complicated than it was in Twelfth Night in order to become basically a, a Disney sort of teen movie. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's, it does radically simplify the story of Twelfth Night. So it does become, you know, like they're just in love. Great. Um, and it just irritates me the way that um, she does end up um, sort of embracing the debutante kind of thing at the end. Um, yes, she sort of dresses sexy instead of frilly, but um, it, it, it posits that the heterosexual kind of relationship um, can only sort of come about when she has embraced femininity instead of, you know, being the kind of um, the kind of girl that's into sports and, you know, doesn't want to wear dresses and so forth. So I think it, it sort of dilutes the kind of gender play of Twelfth Night a lot. And it doesn't really have anything really to say about gender. I mean, yes, she kind of says, okay, well, I'm not into frills and that. But there's this really kind of clunky binary between, like, the girl that's into sports versus the girl that's into frills, um, the dude who can be sensitive but also um, a soccer player. I mean, it just, it doesn't really, I, I just found it had nothing to say about anything. And so you're right, it ends up just being a kind of fairly conventional love story with a bit of, you know, Shakespeare's names throughout. And I, I didn't, and at the end I was like, okay, so they've gotten together. What am I supposed to take from this? <laughs> For me, some of the, the there were um, a couple of moments that I found both funny and rewarding, um, and kind of, I guess the where the movie was was pointing to, and these happen on the field appropriately enough. Um, I find a lot of the interesting stuff happens when they're actually playing football or yeah. soccer, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, so. The, one of them that I really like, I loved the coach in Illyria. So obviously in, the, in Twelfth Night, Illyria is sort of this, almost like this strange land that Viola appears on, you know, after the shipwreck, it's over, overseas and she arrives in this kind of weird place where she can be whoever she wants to be. Mm. And the film kind of retains that because Illyria is this strange school and she can go there and pretend to be whoever she wants to be and no one knows any different. And I loved at the end this hyper-masculine coach um, who's got almost this kind of um, London criminal boss kind of vibe going on with his accent and everything. <laughs> when they finally discover her identity and that she's a girl and um, the other coach tries to get her banned from the field because, you know, girls can't play in the league. Um, it says here in the rule book and he rips up the rule book and he says, what rule book? And then he says something like, this is Illyria and we don't discriminate based on, on the basis of gender. <laughs> and I just thought it was so funny. You know, that was a nice, for me, that was nice because that was kind of the whole point of what the film was getting towards. We don't want to discriminate and force people into these gender boxes. So if a girl wants to play soccer, she bloody well can and she should be able to play against the boys and then obviously the payoff for that is she does get to play and then there's the one scene and I, I replayed this about 10 times because it's so satisfying the final goal when she <laughs> when she gets the penalty kick you know she kicks it in and then obviously the practice scenario that they'd been through so Duke heads the ball back to her and she does that amazing like kick in the air to kick it straight into the goal and that for me was super satisfying because I love those kind of moments of particularly female athleticism 
Yeah. Um, you know, so she got the winning, the winning moment there. And I think that was a little triumph for the film. That was kind of, but again, that was the extent of their message. Girls can do it if they want. If they work hard, they can, they can do it. And then afterwards, I guess they return to their, yeah, they return back to a, um, and a socially acceptable gender binary by going to the ball together and yeah, exactly. Yeah, cementing their relationship in those kind of really outmoded, you know, um, debutante ball kind of scenarios. Yeah, I agree. I think that you're right. There is something there in in its you know exploration of women's sport, but um, it just doesn't. I don't know, it doesn't act on anything that it wants to say. Jimmy, I know that you like this film much more than we do. Are you going to defend it from our slanders? Um, no, I've been sort of sitting here trying to figure out why it is that I've enjoyed the film more than the two of you. And what I've concluded is that I, even though I'm older than both of you, I'm obviously more immature than both of you <laughs> because I've approached it, I guess, from a, a quite a different angle. Um, and the other thing that also gets me possibly that may have been helpful for me anyway in terms of enjoying the film, I'm also approaching it from a different gendered perspective as well. So I noticed that when Kirsten was talking, the scenes that she loved the most were the scenes that um, really critique traditional notions of um, femininity. Uh, so, you know, the, the one scene that she replayed over was, you know, a critique of that. Whereas the scene I enjoyed the most were the scenes that uh, critique traditional notions of masculinity. Uh, and there's one scene that I do love playing over and over and over again because I think it is, um, for me, it's probably the most clever scene in the entire film. Uh, and I completely agree in, uh, in terms of the way that it approaches homosexuality does have a sort of latent homophobia about it. You know, I think there's some really interesting areas it could have gone into, you know, that, um, in terms of looking at possibly Duke's um, attraction uh, to Olivia, now knowing that she was Olivia, that's an area that could have gone into that would be much more interesting and much more complex um, in terms of, you know, his, um, and from a less superficial perspective as well. But they didn't go into that area and it returned to a more traditional notion of you know, gender neutrality and all that stuff. You know, I completely agree with that. But I think taken in bits pieces, there are some, for me, to really like a moment. Uh, one involved a fantastic cat fight in the bathroom, which I find absolutely hysterical. But again, I have to be immature about it. And I just the, the idea of you know, two females putting each other's hair out and, you know, bopping the other girl on top of the head. I just found that hysterical. But the scene that I turned to uh, over and over again, because I think it does a wonderful critique of masculinity, is when um, Olivia was trying to accepted as a as a man quote unquote and the way that she did it was she uh, enrolled her uh, gay best friend to help her and he helps her by basically having all her you know attractive female friends come in and pretend that they were exes of hers uh, and it's a wonderful scene because it shows the way that um heterosexual male um value um sort of female sexuality as um as a form of currency if you want to be accepted you need to have a history of you know basically possessing, owning these beautiful women. And if you do that, you're going to be accepted. And so that's, that critiques masculinity much more so than it does femininity in, in my eyes, because we see from that perspective how the women are basically playing them at the end because they know this is the case and they're going to you know, use it to their advantage. Uh, there is also a fantastic line, which I would love to use one day, but I don't think I would ever be able to get away with it, which is in, um, I've forgotten her name now, Sebastian's uh, girlfriend comes in and you know one of them guys he hit on her and, she, and he, she's like ew, ew, what are you doing so you know girls with asses like mine do not speak to boys with faces like yours you know so i i love that kind of approach i would to... pay you to say that to somebody <laughs> <laughs> well you know I, I think kirsten could get away with something like that you know i can see here with the whole attitude and the hand gestures <laughs> and everything it would work beautifully but that kind of shows also the, 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a wonderful scenario. And it also shows, I think, the kind of um, power that women who have possession of their sexuality can also claim for themselves. Um, I mean, she uses it in quite a, a negative manner, but then you've got uh, someone who's using it as a way to critique traditional notions of masculinity or heterosexual masculinity uh, that suggests that it's actually quite silly um, and quite superficial and really nonsensical because at the end of that, they basically said, yeah, you're, you're accepted because, you know, you're, you're a badass. You know, you've, you've slept with all these women and you've, you know, they're all lusting after you. What's your secret? You must tell us so we can you know, do the same thing ourselves. You know, it's, it's very childish. It's very immature. It's, uh, you walk away from that scene having a much lower opinion of men than you do of women. So I think it's uh, or at least traditional notions of men. So I think from that perspective, it is quite a clever way of approaching gender. Uh, the, the other issues that you know, we've already discussed, I think they are still there. And that's where the film, I think, isn't brave enough to go to those sort of levels. But for me, as I said earlier, I walked into it thinking it's a, it's a romantic comedy. I don't expect to walk out of a romantic comedy with deep notions of, you know, understandings of gender and sexuality and all that stuff. I go in there for a good time and it entertained me. It made me laugh. Uh, there were some sappy romantic moments, which, you know, it, it fulfilled all the right criteria. So it's a, a film that does execute all those things well. You know, there's some really bad rom-coms out there and I wouldn't put this into those categories of really, really bad rom-coms it's a good rom-com it's not a great Shakespeare adaptation um, because I, I think you know when we're looking at Shakespeare we're looking at complexities we're looking at a uh, really really wonderful story and it doesn't quite go to that territory but then I wasn't expecting that so I think from that perspective I was much more forgiving of it than, um, than Stephanie definitely was <laughs> in the story so say with Olivia right you know the hot chick who everybody wants um, etc. So she is interested in Sebastian, or at least Viola pretending to be Sebastian, because he, she um, isn't, you know, traditionally masculine, right? Um, because he faints when he, um, you know, is in the science lab, he um, talks about his feelings, he talks about shoes and all of that. There is, there could have been a story there um, that Queered ideas of romance, but you know they just brush it off because she just falls in love with the real Sebastian. But I wonder also how much of that. Um, sorry, I wonder how much of that is the film being handicapped by the actual story itself. You know, where could it possibly take? But that's why. But, but see, that's got the advantage. I mean, I agree. Maybe that that they wanted to stick to like the plot. You know maintaining the plot of Twelfth Night very closely. But you see, for me, the advantage of adaptation is that you can make changes. And what would have been, to me, a much more interesting change is making her a lesbian, right? And just making that and re having her realise through her, through her relationship with Sebastian that actually she's not interested in men, that she's interested in women. That would have been a much more interesting contemporary adaptation. And I suspect something that would be done today if this movie was made today. I think it's, it is a bit dated by just assuming, okay, we're going to flirt a little bit with the idea of, of homosexuality, but we're going to, you know, retreat very quickly from it. I think that is, I hope, something that we wouldn't be so accepting of in, in films made today. That's, for me, where the datedness comes from. Even the way that, like, you know, the scene where they see Malvolio the spider <laughs> um, when Duke and, and Sebastian... Um, are jumping on the bed and they end up hugging and then they're like, oh, oh. Um, just this kind of like reflexive um, homophobia 
um, just struck me as really tiresome and dated. And I hope it would be something that would be different if this was made today, but I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with that. I think um, even the, the tired old trope of the gay best friend whose, whose homosexuality is never explicitly mentioned or seen, but we just understand from the fact that he's a hairdresser, that he's yeah, meant to be gay, yeah. and he understands both the male culture that he's rejected, so he can tutor her in how to be a guy, but he gets the feminine side, so he's one of the girls. That's such a, like, I mean, as accurately as it describes some people, I've got friends like that, they're wonderful, but um, to, to, to only have that as the, the only gay option in a movie, I think is very tired and very, it's, it's one of the things that makes this film so dated. And there's um, nothing more to that character, except that he's a gay Yeah, yeah he purely functions as a stepping stone for the female and male characters to come together. He's basically a, a servant of heterosexual relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a Cinderella's, he's like a fairy, fairy godmother. Um, he's a sassy you know. and he just comes in and he's sassy and then leaves. And that's yeah. it. And I mean, he's he's funny. He's a he's a, a funny good character. But I mean, yeah, it's more about the kind of subtle suggestions around that. Um, and don't get me wrong, like I did enjoy. I think like I, I started out not enjoying the film that much, but it was mostly because of its level of I don't like almost childishness. Um, the the kind of excessively um, silly facial expressions that Amanda Bynes was pulling the whole time. Hmm. Um, was verging on like a Nickelodeon level of kid movie mm-hmm. ridiculousness that I couldn't stomach for very much longer. And then finally, when they when the plot kicked in, it that got toned down a lot more. And I also had to remember, okay, like a lot of Shakespeare, like Twelfth Night. One of the reasons I enjoyed that so much was the silly facial expressions that Malvolio was pulling. But um, so I had to kind of think about, okay, maybe it's not that annoying i have to try and just tone down my annoyance there and then i enjoyed the last three quarters of the film i actually enjoyed it yeah a fair bit while also recognizing that it was fairly one-dimensional it just did what it did it did it fairly well like jimmy's right it's it's not a bad rom-com it's a fairly good rom-com it's enjoyable enough like once you get once it gets going i actually enjoyed it but yeah i just it could have been more, I guess. If we're if we're discussing it as an adaptation, you know, along the likes of when you've got things like Clueless and you've got things like Ten Things I Hate About You that just manage to be layered and complex and clever, something like this, there was room for it to be more nuanced and more clever. And basically it just involves just rethinking how to adapt source material into a modern context without just chopping it straight down the middle, getting rid of the complex parts and keeping the bare bones heterosexual storyline that's made funny by a little bit of camp cross-dressing. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with all those points. And I think, you know, one of the um, things that's uh, always... Um, in most people's mind when when they're looking at adaptations. I mean, there's two major factors. One is, you know, does it uh, meet up to the complexities of the original text? Uh, And the second, which unfortunately is the main focus of a lot of adaptation, is uh, is it faithful to the original text? And I think fidelity, unfortunately, a lot of times handicaps a lot of adaptations. uh, There's such a need to remain faithful to original, not necessarily the spirit, but the plot of the text. 
that it just completely destroys any kind of uh, possible complexity you could look at, you know, and, and when you're looking at something like Shakespeare, the language is so important in terms of making it complex that when you adapt into a modern setting and you don't have that language anymore, then you lose out on all that complexities that, that's built into his plays. So what you end up with then is, as you guys have described, a fairly straightforward story that just has a little bit of cross-dressing uh, thrown into it, uh, which makes it kind of a, a little bit of a boring adaptation. But I was thinking back to what Steph was talking about in terms of if this was adapted today, and I'm not so sure that they would be as brave um, to change the Olivia character and make her into um, sort of, you know, discovering her lesbianism uh, at the end, mainly because of the whole fidelity issue, uh, because that would then be seen as unfaithful to the original play and the kind of criticism that would be thrown on that would just almost, you know, hamper it completely. And I was also thinking of a, you know, well, not as recent anymore, but fairly recent adaptation which I absolutely loathe, um, and that was um, 2013 adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. And that was just so bad because it, um, it did everything that, you know, you guys accused this one of, and, and then some, you know, the, the meeting between Romeo and Juliet is played with uh, lush music happening in the background and these close-ups with soft filters. It made me almost want to vomit at, at how bad it, it actually was in terms of trying to show this, adolescent love that was developing between these two. All it showed was, you know, superfici superficiality. Uh, and if you take the scene out of context, there was something very pervy about it too, something, you know, quite gross about the way they were kind of going, oh. They're trying to look intense, but it was just bad acting, I think. Um, and so that was a fairly recent adaptation. And I, and I thought that was such a traditional, uh, but badly traditional adaptation of mm. um, Romeo and Juliet that it just does make me wonder whether more recent adaptation would have that kind of courage to do so. I think it, what it comes down to um, are the original filmmakers itself uh, themselves. So I think if you have brave filmmakers who will do something really, really interesting with an adaptation and who doesn't um, tend so much to uh, being faithful to the plot of the story, but rather the spirit um, of the text, then you'll have something interesting happening. So one of my favorite adaptations of all time uh, is actually Alfonso Cuaron's adaptation of Great Expectations, which mm -hmm. a lot of people hated because they said it, was, it wasn't faithful. But I've analyzed that film, you know, because I love it so much, um, almost scene by scene. And one of the things I've discovered is the way that he stays so faithful to the spirit of the story by transporting it into a contemporary setting, because you can't have that whole class thing happening today and still make it relevant. It would just seem tired and silly. So he transported it into an environment where it does make sense, you know, into this sort of art high culture environment where people are still, you know, valuing those sort of um, ideas. And it does make sense in that setting, but that got criticized. And I think that's, that speaks more about the way we interpret adaptations nowadays than uh, it does for the actual adaptation itself. So I think if we can start to change the way we see adaptations, we will get better adaptations as a result. And I completely agree, you know, in terms of Twelfth Night, making this a much more complex film, there is definitely room and scope to make this a much more complex film. I would have loved to see uh, definitely you know, the uh, Olivia character coming to some sort of realization about what actually attracts her. But by the same token, I would also like to see that mirrored with the Duke character to understand mm. what really attracts him as well. Yeah, so there's definitely room there. And I think we do get glimpses of that in the original play, which this doesn't actually do as well because it, I think it, it just wasn't brave enough to do that. And uh, my only criticism for the film, I suppose, would be from that ground, that it just, it wasn't a brave adaptation. It was a safe adaptation. And, and that yeah. I think is where Steph's main criticism comes from. 
I completely agree. And I, can, and I think that talking about fidelity in relation to adaptations is where we go wrong because you're right, this is a faithful adaptation in terms of plot and it's completely dull um, as a result. Um, where I think, you know, what, what sort of frustrates me is by moving it into a different context, you can make all sorts of changes and presumably not be accused of being unfaithful because, you know, like the average teenager probably has some kind of awareness or the average teenager in 2006 probably had some kind of awareness that maybe this was based on Twelfth Night. Maybe they didn't, maybe they did, but you don't have to know Twelfth Night. You can go in and enjoy it without having any awareness of it as a Shakespeare adaptation. So therefore the average teenager is not going to say, well, they changed this. How dare they? Right. Um, you know, clueless changes heaps about Emma, right? But we, you know, when we come to talk about Clueless, I'm sure we'll be talking about how, how well that picks up the spirit of the novel. So I feel like there was an opportunity here to change aspects of the plot without having that sort of reflexive, oh, well, the book was better. How dare they change this? You know, people getting the vapors about, you know, plot changes, but they didn't. And it just, I don't know. I think this whole, the whole idea of critiquing an adaptation through the lens of fidelity just misses the point. I mean, novels and well, and plays in this case and films are different things. And, you know, changing the setting from 500 years ago to now is obviously going to involve some kind of reconsideration um, of the, um, the text as a text. So I just think if you're going to do that, go for it. Change things like be bold, be adventurous, um, do more interesting things, you know, try and yes, try and be true to the spirit, but Shakespeare is great because he does take risks. He's adventurous. He is um, boundary pushing. He's complex. So why turn that into a really standard rom-com with nothing to say? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, fidelity is just such a an unuseful way to think about adaptation. Um, I mean, what's the point of adaptation if you're going to be completely faithful? Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Just go to the original text. Um, so, yeah, I think the best adaptations are the ones um, that, and we can apply this even to sometimes to translation. I remember when we teach things like Beowulf, um, I really enjoy teaching the uh, the Seamus Heaney translation of the poem, which is not the most accurate in terms of its word selections, but I would argue that it is a better translation because it captures the spirit. Like Jimmy was saying, um, of the original, like it, it has that sense of the poetry, the rhythm, the feel, um, which are really important in conveying some of those central themes and ideas. And I would argue the same for the Shakespeare text. So something like Twelfth Night is highly dependent on the mood it creates um, and the, yeah, the kind of uh, tensions that happen between characters. And I think when you just strip a basic plot, so, you know, girl changes gender, meets boy, accidentally falls in love, weird love triangle happens. Like that describes so many different books and films and plays and, you know, um, I think, yeah, I just think it would, be, would have been a lot more fun to do more with it. But that said, like, like I said, I, I did enjoy it for what it was. Like the, the simple part it takes, it does fairly well. Um, but yeah, there was room, room for more fun. I think we might leave it there. I feel I feel a bit bad about jumping so hard on this movie. There are <laughs> enjoyable things about it, but I probably wouldn't watch it again. And I think it's it's um 
having seen most of the films that we're going to talk about in this series, I think it's the least successful. But anyway, um, thanks, guys, for coming and chatting virtually with me um, about She's the Man. So thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Kirsten. Pleasure, as always. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks for having us. That's okay. And we will be back soon to talk about more uh, classic um, text transformed into teen movies. I think next we might have to do Clueless as a kind of, um, you know, way of getting back into the groove of these things. <laughs> palette, a palate cleanser. Yeah, definitely a palate cleanser. All right, thanks, guys. See you in two weeks. If you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. Or if you could um, send us, drop us a line at fromthelighthouse.org or get in touch with us at um, on Twitter at MQ English. Thanks, everyone. See you in two weeks.